what does it mean to speak freely? Why is it so important for us to be able to voice alternative viewpoints? Why is having difficult conversations in public so critical for our democracy? These are questions I've been thinking and talking a lot about this week. Free speech as a value is not particularly fashionable on the left right now. So now is a good time to have a broader conversation about why it is so important. Free speech is a non-partisan issue. It has absolutely nothing to do with left and right. It is a universal human right and a universal premise. It's something that I would have liked to think we can all agree on. Andrew Doyle is a British comic who's thought a lot about this topic. He initially found fame with his social justice warrior Twitter parody, Tatiana McGrath. But he's since become known as a crusader for free speech, a critic of the far left, and the host of the GB news show Free Speech Nation, which I appeared on last week. Andrew Doyle has a new book, Free Speech and Why It Matters. It's a thought-provoking, well-argued, and well-written polemic. In it, he walks through key arguments in favor of free speech and lays out why it is so important for democracy, for human rights, and for art. With that, here is my conversation with Andrew Doyle. Andrew, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very, very pleased to have you on the program today. I think your book is fantastic and so timely. Thank you. Lots to talk about today. I'd like to start with a quote from your book. I think it will set up our discussion well. The capacity to articulate our thoughts is how we engage with the world. It is the essence of our common humanity. To grapple with the complexities of life is a collaborative endeavor. Without freedom of speech, therefore, we are kept in a permanent state of infancy, thwarted in our development as fully autonomous and free-thinking citizens. Without it, there can be no education, no means to defend ourselves when maligned or misrepresented, no exchange of ideas, no artistic expression, and no safeguard against indoctrination. Through speech, we express skepticism, probe for answers, make sense of our experiences, and navigate towards the ever-receding horizon of truth. We surrender these freedoms at our peril. So well said. You are of the left. I am of the left. This used to be the thinking on the left. Yes. Well, I mean, this is one of the things that I've explored in the book because I do consider it a great tragedy. That's something, well, I always associated it with the left. Maybe I was in error, but, you know, I certainly, when I was growing up, all of the uh, calls for censorship of usually film and books and media were coming from the right. I mean, that's definitely my memory of it. Today, the voices who are supporting freedom of expression even when they don't like what is being said, tend to come from the right. Something's happened. The left are the ones now who are saying, ban this filth, ban this film, ban this book. You know, you know, there's even, I mean, you know, in Canada, of course, you've had uh, revelations recently about a flame purification ceremony, a group of uh, secondary schools burning up to 5,000 books, I think it was, because they had out- outdated racial stereotypes, burning the books and using the ashes to fertilize a tree. So you see there, this image that it's a very progressive, beautiful image of growth and nourishment. But of course, what it is, it also has incredible fascistic overtones of uh, Fahrenheit 451 in there as well. So it's a grim reality we have to face that the left, what used to be the left, has been hijacked, unfortunately, by this new identitarian, identity-obsessed ideology, which is very intolerant. And at, at its core, just does not believe 
in the idea of free expression does not believe because this is something I've explored in a new book that I've, I've just finished is, you know, this is very much, I think, the origins of this ideology come from the postmodernism, come from this, this nexus of power and language, this idea that our reality is entirely constructed through words. And if you believe that, and if you believe that all art and literature is simply an expression or manifestation of the will to power, in other words, it's just white males asserting their power over the rest of the world. If that's all you can see when you read The Tempest or Henry VIII or any of the Shakespearean plays, if you if that's all you can see, then for a start, you're not in a good position to apprehend the purpose of art or even to appreciate its beauty and numinous nature. You are misunderstanding the world. And you are also, of course, in a very strong position then to say we need to censor words because if words are power, if words are the means by which power is exerted and, and oppressors sustain their role over the oppressed, then we need to make sure people are saying the right words. And how do we do that? We do that through either state legislation, increasingly big tech censorship, or indeed just societal pressure. This is something that John Stuart Mill writes about, the tyranny of custom, you know, the fact that we can create an atmosphere in which it is difficult to express oneself fully without calamitous consequences from one's peers. So all of those things... Yeah, it's not left-wing, let's put it this way. All of the great left-wing movements of the past have believed in, I mean, well, not all, but the ones that I most keenly associate with, the civil rights movements, black emancipation, gay emancipation, women's rights, all of those movements of the 60s. At the heart of it, you had to have free speech. This is why there was the free speech movement in Berkeley in the 1960s, because they knew that without it, we haven't got any other freedom. And that is something that those who identify as being on the left, many of them, no longer have. And I, I use that very specifically because I don't think they are authentically left-wing in any meaningful sense. Mm -hmm. There was quite a moment recently, NPR did this whole hour-long program on freedom of speech and mm. interviewed not a single defender of freedom yeah. of speech. <laughs> oh, I know. There's a book that came out quite recently, which is a collection of essays attempting to grapple with the debates around freedom of speech. And I think there's around 14 contributions in that. And one of them one of them is defending free speech and all of the others are trying to pick pick out the problems with it and problematize it. You know, this is very much, it feels very much as though, well, although the battle hasn't been lost for free speech, it feels as though the people with the most clout are now free speech skeptics and they mm. are the ones who get to decide which essays go into that sort of book and which books get to be published and which films get to be made. You know, so that's the problem we are really facing, which mm. is why I wanted to write a book which was short, accessible to the point, trying to restate these basic principles, and I make no claim to originality with this worldview, it's about restating the argument in a way that resonates with people today. Mm. And I want to get through some of the points today for listeners, some of the, the objections. But before we do that, set the stage for us. You have this fascinating anecdote at the beginning of the book, an entrepreneur who is visited by the police who need to check his thinking. Can you just yeah. tell us that story quickly? Well, it's a good day to ask me because he's just today had his appeal upheld. So we'll talk about that. So this was Harry Miller, entrepreneur, former police officer, as it happens, who had retweeted a poem, a comedic, potentially offensive poem about gender identity. And the police visited him and said that they were investigating him for this. Someone had complained, a complete stranger, unknown to him, no one he knew personally, and had complained to the police and said that they felt that it was a hate crime and that they felt that they were the victim of a hate crime. The police approached him and said, the victim has said this, the victim has said that. He said, has a crime been committed? They said, no. They said, this is potentially a non-crime hate incident. 
And he said to them, why do you keep calling, referring to this person as a victim? Do you not believe in due process? We haven't had any trial. You say there's no crime. How can there be a victim if there's no crime? And they were saying, and they used the phrase, the police officer in question used the phrase, we need to check your thinking, which is, of course, lifted directly from Orwell, isn't it? You know, inadvertently so. And, and I know that people claim that the claim of Orwellianism has become a cliche. But how, how else can you describe that when the state is attempting to enforce your thoughts straight out of 1984. So he challenged it. It soon emerged, and this was something that people just didn't generally know, but it soon emerged that the police were routinely investigating and recording non-crime. In the UK, between 2014 and 2019, there were 120,000 recorded non-crime hate incidents. And this was bypassing people by completely, because, of course, you didn't know any of us could have non-crime recorded against us on a police file without knowing the police were under no obligation and never did tell people about it. In the case of Harry Miller, they told him because they were investigating him. It wasn't just a recorded non-crime. It was an investigation they were launching. So very sinister. It went to court. Harry Miller, because he, you know, he took it all the way, which is great because most people would just capitulate and say, okay, right then he didn't. And partly it's because I think he's a former police officer himself. And all of this is very new. You know, this wouldn't have happened 15, 20 years ago. He took it to court the judge ruled that they were unlawful to investigate him for retweeting. You know, he didn't write the tweet, he retweeted. They were unlawful to do that. But the judge also ruled that it wasn't unlawful for the police to investigate non-crime. So he appealed it. And then today, at the Royal Court of Justice, the judge ruled that it is, in fact, unlawful for the police to record non-crime hate incidents. And so this will be quickly stamped out. Now, it's a landmark ruling state. It's really wonderful because this, as you know, is something I talk about in the book, this idea of, but it's only the first step. This is the thing. I mean, I think one of the, the key arguments of my book is that we really need to abolish hate speech laws in their entirety. And we can maybe go into that. Mm. And this is the first step towards that. Let's first deal with the fact that the police are wasting an awful lot of time and taxpayers' money on investigating non-crime. Let's just park that and hope that that now goes away. I have a fear that there will be elements within the College of Policing and the police force who will attempt to perpetuate this stuff and find a way around it. But let's hope that that's sort of done now as of today's ruling. The fact that it even existed in the first place will tell you something about the extent to which the um, free speech skeptics now have incredible institutional power. And I think in Canada, you have some serious problems as well along these lines. And you, you have your government openly effectively calling for more restrictions on speech and supporting compelled speech which is very, very disturbing. Mm -hmm. At all levels of our society. Uh, as you know, I've quit my job in mainstream media. I'm very concerned about us maintaining a free press. So there's lots to talk about here. I want to go through some of the objections and misunderstandings. Let's start with hate speech, since you brought that up. When I was listening to the NPR show, they spoke to a woman, Susan Banesh, director of the Dangerous Speech Project, also very Orwellian. <laughs> and her you know, example on the hate speech is one that's brought up very frequently, Nazis in Germany, how quickly that speech generated the conditions necessary for genocide. So what do you make of that argument when it comes to hate speech? Well, the case of Nazi Germany is a good example because the Nazis were repeatedly prosecuted for hate speech in the Weimar Republic. And the the, the man who produced, the Sturmer, was routinely in court. Goebbels was prosecuted. Every time the Nazis were prosecuted for hate speech, they used it as a publicity opportunity, a way to spread their message. They got a lot of press out of it. Arguably, therefore, this actually helped them. If hate speech laws didn't prevent, but in fact facilitated the rise of the Nazis, what on earth, why on earth do we think it's going to be any different today? So I think that's just a sort of basic misunderstanding about what happened. 
you could take any of the most extreme examples in history of anything horrendous that has ever happened and point to speech as the culprit, couldn't you? I mean, any kind of violent activity has some kind of stimulus, whether that is speech or something they've seen on TV or an argument they've had, or it could be, I mean, the, the possibilities are absolutely limitless. Your mistake would be to blame the catalyst, to blame the thing that triggered it, because of course, Ultimately, the responsibility has to lie with the perpetrator. That's the only way that you can have any kind of coherent legal system or, or ethical system even. So, I mean, the idea, you know, we had this in this country when the, there was the horrific killing. When I was very young, there was a horrific killing of a small boy called James Bolger by two other children. And these were nine, 10 year old children. And it was brutal. I mean, the details of the case I won't repeat because it's utterly horrific. And people wanted them tried as adults and all the rest of it. But what, what was very interesting is that the media immediately found that they had seen a film leading up to the event. And they said, this is what caused it. This is why they did it. Now, obviously, when you're faced with such a horrific, horrible, incomprehensible act, particularly by a child, you have then a stimulus and you can say, well, let's, that's why. It sort of resolves an otherwise messy business. Now we can understand this thing that is inexplicable. But of course, that's not why. And as it turned out, they hadn't even seen the film. But you see, this is this is our instinct is to leap to who said this, who said that. Now, we have this all the time. Recently, when the film Joker came out, the press were all over it saying this is going to incite an incel to commit an act of mass murder. It was almost like they wanted that to happen. They were so keen on that. They kept going on about this. Of course, it never did. But they were convinced. I mean, this is what it comes down to, a sort of mistrust of the masses, this idea that we are just acting mechanically on cues to things that we hear in the media or in the press or from politicians or whatever. This is another, that idea has been debunked. It has gone. We have the statistics, the data, the research, six decades of research into this, into media effects theory. It has been discredited. Certainly the direct effects model has been discredited. It is not the case that mass media, uh, that public behavior shifts on the base of mass media consumption. So we know that not to be true. So then why do we do as this article of faith we must censor these words. We must ban these, these films. We must ban these books because otherwise they will cause the plebeians, the masses, the great unwashed to react in this way. It's the old idea that the masses are corruptible. This is the example. This is the, you won't have heard of it, but Mary Whitehouse in this country was a campaigner back in the 60s, 70s and 80s who uh, was very famous for making this argument. But she was coming from the Christian right. And she was saying that we need to legislate against films and books and plays and all the rest of it because they have the capacity to corrupt the masses. That is the identical argument now coming from the identitarian left, from the critical social justice movement. Identical argument. And they can't even see it. They've sort of seized the mantle of the right and are running with it. And although we shouldn't think in terms of partisan terms, we really shouldn't because I have friends on the left and the right. It's not about that. It's not about who's got it right, who's got it wrong. Free speech is a non-partisan issue. There's absolutely nothing to do with left and right. It is a universal human right and a universal premise. It's something that I would have liked to think we can all agree on. So the idea that hate speech laws, we just have to put it to bed. The idea that hate speech laws will prevent crime is not borne out by the evidence of history. Mm. Another argument that I hear all the time is we have to compromise on censorship. Mm. This was talked about a lot in the context of big tech. We need to compromise on censorship and because we have to protect minority rights. What do you say to that argument? I would point to um, the work of Jacob Manchanga, who has repeatedly shown that throughout the world, wherever there are countries and states that have uh, the most strict prohibitions against free speech, it's always the worst for minorities. So always minorities who suffer the most from not having free speech rules. 
So the argument actually should be that in order to protect minority rights, we need free speech as a baseline. Because if you empower the state to determine the limits of what people can say and think, ultimately, might not happen straight away, but ultimately, the people who will suffer the most are the marginalized within society. Absolutely the case. So mm -hmm. this is to read this entire thing backwards. That's what this does. And I go back to the civil rights luminaries of the 60s. They all knew this. They were all fully aware that it was a complete lost cause without the right to say what they thought. Free speech is there for everyone. And simply because some people are going to exploit their free speech rights to demonize others, to say very, very unpleasant things, that does not mean that we should surrender our shared principles of free speech and empower the state further than it needs to be when it comes to our freedom of expression in order to prevent that happening. It's about reframing the question. So if I hear a demagogue on a street corner screaming about how gay people should be locked away and how gay people are evil and they will burn in hell, I have to think to my, if I say I support that person's right to scream those words, I'm not saying I support the content of the speech. I abhor the content of the speech. But the question should be not, do I support what that person is saying? The question should be, would I rather that there are a few maniacs of that kind attempting to proselytize, attempting and failing, I should add, to proselytize with their vile message, or that we allow the state to lock people up and establish a precedent in law where the state can lock people away for words that they don't like? Which is the greater evil? And I think if you know about history, you know the answer to that question. Mm. The last objection that I wanted to raise, I preparing for this interview, I was watching quite a few interviews that you have given. And I noticed that people often ask, are you concerned of giving fuel to the fire of the far right? Are you concerned because free speech has become a right issue that you will somehow support that cause? I've been asked that myself as well. Uh, many people on the left are very, very concerned about that allocation. And how do you sort of unpack that one? Well, because their feeling is that the way to defeat the far right is to silence the far right. And that's absolutely 100% wrong. That's the way to give them sucker. If you want the far right to flourish, then create a sensorial environment. Create the conditions where in which they can claim to be martyrs to free speech. Create those conditions and you will do them a massive, massive favour. You know, what it means is that their, their ideas are not subject to scrutiny. They are burrowing away in the dark web, in the various recesses of the internet, talking only to each other where the light of reason cannot penetrate. Nobody is raising objections to these people. They flourish and grow. You know, I, I even saw an interview with someone, I can't remember who it was, but it was some idiot far-right white nationalist type who was saying that, you know, what someone said, what, what do you want the woke or whoever to keep? He said, I want them to keep doing what they're doing. It's helping us. And, you know, when we degrade these words like fascist, far-right, everyone gets called a fascist now. I don't think anyone who's on Twitter is, hasn't been called that at some point or other. The word has been so continually misapplied as to lose all meaning. And I've been called it for standing up for liberal values and free speech, which is obviously the antithesis of fascistic thought. So when you do that, what you're doing is you're providing cover for the far right. It doesn't mean anything anymore. They can say, look, look how many fascists there are. Look how many racists there are. We're the mainstream. We're the norm. I have no idea why you would want to act as the PR for these people by doing this. I have no idea why anyone would want to do that, but that's what they're doing effectively. And I would say the cause for free speech is the way to defeat them is the way to ensure that their ideas do not are not promulgated and that people can and we can hold them up for either counter argument but more likely ridicule protest all of these things that are, can only come about if you have free speech in a society again it's it's getting it backwards it's jumping to the idea that censorship will solve the problem and like i say in the short term you can silence people 
you have to think long term. In the long term, you strengthen their cause. That's the problem. Mm. You bring up the issue of, of sort of the woke worldview. I was curious, thinking about your trajectory, when did you start becoming skeptical of this ascendant worldview? Well, I think it just happened so rapidly that it took a lot of us by surprise, you know, and I think one of the key moments for me was a case in Scotland, which was uh, the Marcus Meekin case. And this was about five years, it was in fact five years ago now, where he was a, a YouTuber. He had about eight followers on YouTube, just a working class guy from Scotland, put funny videos out for his eight followers. He created a video where he taught his girlfriend's pug dog to do a Nazi salute and to react excitedly to some very offensive phrases. This was the joke, you know, so the phrases were Zeke Heil, gas the Jews, very offensive phrases in of themselves. But then when you put them in the context of a dog jumping about to the phrase, and he explained the joke in the video, he said, my girlfriend's always going on about how cute and adorable her dog is. So I decided to turn it, to turn it into the most evil thing in the world, which is a Nazi, right? So the joke is predicated on the idea that Nazis are uniquely evil. That's the whole joke. But because there is a kind of literal mindedness in this in this worldview now, what they say is, well, we, we just saw the phrase repeated over and over. And that phrase is evil. Therefore, the video is evil. And he was prosecuted in a court of law. Now, I never thought that would happen. So when he was arrested, I assumed comedians would come out and say, look, because it was a, it was so obvious. It was a similar joke to the Mel Brooks joke in Springtime for Hitler. You know, it was making fun of Nazis. So I assumed, well, this isn't going to go to court. And then it went to court. And I thought, well, it's not going to he's not going to be prosecuted, is he? And then he was prosecuted. They was found guilty. And I expected comedians and artists and people to stand up and say, this is not, we may not like the joke. A lot of my comedian friends didn't like the joke, but we can't have a situation where the state is criminalizing people for making jokes. We can't have that. No one stood up. And I was in fact attacked and smeared as alt-right and far-right for defending him by other comedians. And this was a real turning point for me because something huge had changed in a relatively short space. Because going back to 2006, I think it was, or around 2006, the government here, the Tony Blair's government, was trying to push through a religious discrimination act, which would have said that if anyone claimed that a comedian had insulted their religion, you would investigate it. It could be criminalised. The phrase was stir up religious hatred. It means if I had a show on in Edinburgh and I was talking about Catholicism, my religion, and someone said that that was offensive, the police would have shut the show down, investigated it. I would have lost all my income, etc. It would have been a disaster. All comedians got behind this, so this is wrong. It was spearheaded by Rowan Atkinson, who is famous for playing Mr. Bean and Blackadder. All comedians were saying, of course, you can't have the law step in just because someone's caused offence. But that was in 2006. I'm pretty sure it was 2006, certainly around then. And now all of a sudden you've got, we're in 2016. This guy now has a criminal, has gone to court and has been found guilty. This judge genuinely thought that he was trying to radicalize people, spread the message of Nazism through the medium of pugs. This was now seen as legitimate and true. And it wasn't so much, I mean, look, every now and then there's an insane miscarriage of justice. That happens again and again, right? But this, the reaction was what woke me up, I think. The fact that artists and comedians weren't concerned about this. You know, a friend of mine, Lewis Schaefer, who's a Jewish comic, and he actually we played the video in the comedy night that I run in London and he was hosting that night. That was coincidental, by the way. He just he'd, he'd already been booked in and he hosted it and he played the video and he said to the audience, well, you know, before this, I only heard about this. And I thought, God, this guy's an idiot. What's it? You know, and then I watched it and I actually think it's very funny. And I actually think, you know, it's, it's it wasn't. A, and also, by the way, this was a particularly egregious case because the film, when it was uploaded, as I said, this guy only had about eight YouTube followers. In the end, it was seen by over 3 million people. And out of those 3 million people, there was not one complaint to the police, not one. The police came across the video and they went to the Jewish council, the Scottish Jewish council of 
I'm getting the phrase wrong there. It's the Jewish communities in Scotland, I think it is. And ask them, do you find this offensive? And they said, yes, understandably. I could see why people would find it offensive. And so they prosecuted on the basis of a complaint that they had trawled for, that they had sourced, gone out of their way to find. No one had complained, right? And this became a big debate. I understood that a lot of people were offended. There are things that offend me. There's things that offend all of us. And if I had family who had died in the Holocaust, hearing the phrase, gas the Jews, would be sufficient for me to be upset by that. And I wouldn't watch the video, right? I get that. But the question here was, someone who was clearly attempting humour, whether you found it funny or not, it was a clear attempt at humour. Cybercrime intelligence had looked through all his emails, all his texts, everything he'd ever said and done. No evidence of far-right leanings whatsoever. It's a no-brainer. And yet people just decided that because he's joking about this topic in perhaps a gauche way, that means he's an evil Nazi. It's it, And I just realised something has changed. that those In those intervening 12 years or whatever it was between the Rowan Atkinson case and this case, something had shifted. And that is what's frightening about this particular critical social justice ideology is the rapidity with which it spreads. It's like a virus. It's absolutely unstoppable. But I think we should try and stop it. I'm glad you brought up comedy in, in the book. You you talk about how terrible this is for art, this, this whole development. And you can really see that in comedy. I mean, there is so much of comedy that is not funny at all anymore. <laughs> which is really a shame because when have we needed to laugh more than we have this last year or two? Well, you know, I get that comedy is subjective and what I find funny, other people don't. And what I don't find funny, other people do. So I'm happy with that. I think there should be comedy about everything. And there is a taste among these activists that their idea of comedy is someone standing up and ranting and giving a sermon with very few jokes. And fine, look, if they want to see that, I don't, that's their form of expression. I don't have a problem with that at all. But I agree with you the art form is not being pushed forward in any significant way as a result of this. More, more and more comedians are self-censoring. More and more comedians don't explore areas that they otherwise would. There's an expectation in terms of if they want to get commissioned on TV, if they want to get those jobs, there are certain things they just won't or can't joke about. And that's fine if you are a certain type of comic who wouldn't naturally delve into sensitive areas anyway, right? And there are lots of comics like that, and that's great, good for them. But the real trailblazers... The ones that we always think about, the kind of Sam Kinnisons of this world, the Andy Kaufmans of this world, the, you know, the Lenny Bruce, you know, these people, those people cannot exist. They will not ever materialize in a climate in which there are these prescriptions against what you can and cannot joke about. Because comedians have to be able to not only go to those areas that are tendentious, they also have to be able to get it wrong. They also be able to have to make mistakes and cause offense. It's part of the process. Yes, it's been terrible. It's been terrible for comedy. I happen to share your view that a lot of these sort of sermonizing identitarian quote unquote comedy shows, I don't find them remotely funny, but that's not the criteria, actually. The point is that I want all comics to be able, and all artists to be able to, to be true to their nature. And if someone is an inherently a mischief maker, a lord of misrule, you know, that kind of comic, I want that person to be able to flourish as much as the middle of the road, safe, comic who, who just naturally wants to make jokes about toasters and things. I, you know, I don't, I think there's room for, for the lot of it, but in this climate, that's not the case. And it goes, and as you will know, it goes for journalism as well. Now there are, you know, mm. there are certain forms of investigative journalism, which are, are becoming increasingly impossible. Mm -hmm. And it's at the point with some stories where if you read the first two lines of the story, you know what all of the points in the story will be before yeah. you, you know. Well, I've been really shocked at the flat out misrepresentation and lies uh, for ideological reasons. Part of this chilling thing about this movement is that its practitioners believe that 
because there is no reality beyond the language with which we use to construct it, lies are fine if the goal is social justice, right? So they can misrepresent the truth and that is considered okay. And I don't know what you do with that, but it's certainly not journalistic. Um, no. You know, and sometimes you need to report uncomfortable truths as a journalist, not the world as you would like it to be. So I have no idea how we get it. I mean, to give an example, so Helen Joyce, who wrote a book called Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality, which is a book I would heartily recommend. She's a journalist. She had, she had never written on the gender identity issue up until writing this book. You know, she, she's, um, she's been working at The Economist for, I think, almost 20 years. And she was commissioned to write something, a story about this. And she was telling me about how she, she started asking questions about it. And people started coming back saying, no, no, you can't ask questions about this. And people were saying to her, I know you mean well, but you're sounding like a Nazi now. And she suddenly realized, I've never had this with any other topic. You know, I'm obviously not a Nazi and I'm exploring something in good faith as a journalist, as I should. And you're telling me that I can't do that. That made her interested. And that's why she started looking into it more. And now she's got this brilliant book. And thank God, because it's a, it's a great sort of accessible way into that debate. But you see, that's what people are facing, this ring fencing of certain topics or the flat out misrepresentations that we're seeing. Mm you know, in the media, which mm -hmm. is very, very disturbing. I mean, you even had the opinion column editor of the New York Times. Once uh, the, the other one was kicked out for publishing an opinion piece by Tom Cotton. And she came in and, and memoed everyone saying, if you see any, any comments by your peers, by fellow journalists that make you nervous, contact me, let me know. In other words, let's police what can and cannot be said. Let's police each other. Well, it's not journalism. It's at that stage, it is propaganda. That's a problem. Mm. And just lastly, I want to talk about where we go from here. The sort of most convincing argument I've heard from people in this debate is it's time to build new things. It's time to build new institutions. It's, and mm. that it's very important for, for those of us who feel incredibly uncomfortable with the direction that things are going to stick our necks up and say so. What do you think is the way forward right now? Well, I would say I think that's right. I really welcome the University of Austin and, the, and, the, and Rolston College in Savannah and the idea of institutions coming up that are committed to free inquiry. Of course, what will happen there is they will be smeared as being um, hotbeds of the alt-right or white supremacism. That, you know, this is the predictable tactic, but they won't be. They're run by good people and they are what universities are meant to be about. So we will need more people to do that. But of course, you have to have incredible resources in order to, to do that. The problem with the woke movement, if that's what we're going to call it, is that they have all the purse strings. They're in, you know, they dominate the corporate world. They dominate the arts, the media, the judiciary, the police, schools, higher education. All of the decision makers, all of those with clout, as I've said. So you have to find a way around it. And I think the other thing that you said is true, that we just all have to be a little bit braver. Uh, we have to take a stand. One of the recourses we can go down is, is through the law, actually. And the law as it stands is on our side. The fact that hate, non-crime hate incidents were reported for so long is because no one had challenged it in a court. No one had taken that step. Once it was challenged, it fell down, right? Similarly, in this country, you know, single sex spaces are under threat because of gender self-identification. But the law, the Equality Act, does defend women's rights to single sex spaces, such as domestic violence, refuge centres. So the law is there. We just need more and more people to push back on it. The only trouble with that is it's expensive. So we do need, ultimately, people with financial means to support those who find themselves the, as, as the victim of cancellation. People like Kathleen Stock in Sussex. So... But I think it comes down to all of us. It's not just those with means as well. I think we all have to inform ourselves about what's going on and take a stand. When you're at work and you have some visiting workshop leader telling you that if you're white, 
you are racist and complicit in white supremacy. You remember when Robin D'Angelo went into Coca-Cola, she told the employers that they should try to be less white. So when those people come in with their absurdities, you need to take a stand. People need to stand up and say, no, this is nonsense and I'm not going to participate. Now, the problem with that is, of course, when it's only a few people doing that, they get fired, they don't get promoted, they have their lives ruined, right? And I'm not unsympathetic to that risk because it is a real risk. That's why it needs to happen en masse. Everyone needs to do it. We all need to be braver. We all need to take a stand and we all need to accept some negative consequences in the short term. But if you care about liberty, I don't see what the alternative is. The other thing I would say is that I part company with some of those who are saying we have to give up on liberalism now. It's not going to work. You know, open debate. These people aren't interested. They just aren't. And they're not interested and they are impervious to reason, but they are still the minority. I mean, a recent survey by a group called More in Common in, in the UK found that a roughly 13% of the country would fall into this category of woke, progressive, critical social justice, whatever you want to call it. 13%. They are the minority in all generations. Let's not forget. This isn't a simple generational split of the old versus the young. They are a minority among the young, right? Small minority. So we have the numbers. That's where the power really lies if we mobilize, you know, and I don't want it to sound all conspiratorial and all the rest, but, but it's just as simple as trying to convince those who are on the fence. You know, that's why I say don't give up on liberalism. Don't just say, well, we can't have the argument anymore. No, have the argument because there are a lot of people, you know, whenever I'm in a debate on Twitter with some extreme activist, I know that person will never be persuaded. I'm fully aware of that. I mean, I might sow the seed of some, some kind of kernel where they go away and they start to doubt themselves and that in of itself is a positive thing. But more than anything, it's the people reading that argument. You know, most people are for free speech, but they have some misgivings about these horrible things that they hear the far right and people like that say, and they, they're uncomfortable with that and they don't know what to do with that. And I sympathize with that and I understand it. So we need to have the arguments out in the open so that those people are persuaded and they understand the arguments. So it is important, I think, to continue on the understanding that we do still live in a broadly liberal society. And I know it feels difficult when, uh, particularly when your government is sort of putting its jackboots down. But I think we've got to have hope in humanity, ultimately, because I think most people are good. I think actually a lot of the uh, free, free free speech skeptics are coming from a good place. That's what makes it particularly hard to, to combat it. You have to keep making the argument. That's my view. Mm. Well, that's a great place to leave it. And having reported so much this last couple of years, I totally agree. It is absolutely the minority. Most people are exhausted by all of this. And most people do not want this sort of extreme culture to to take root. So it's a hopeful place to leave it. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. 